Uh, we thank you for today. We thank you for what we celebrate today. We celebrate your goodness. We celebrate your faithfulness. Both in our lives personally and the life, the life of our families, uh, but the life of our church as well. You have led us through uh, some difficult times. You have provided for us through difficult times. You've protected us. You've guided us, led us, and we're grateful for that. Thank you for being so good to us here. We don't want to take any of it for granted. We thank you most of all for who you are, the salvation that you give to us through Jesus, and your word. That is, so many churches or people are just tossing the Bible out the, out the window is irrelevant, disconnected, meaningless, not the actual word of God. We thank you for the treasure that it really is. God breathed, given to us as a gift, a treasure that reveals who you are, what your relationship is with us, how we can be restored to you, and the hope we have in you, both in this life and for all of eternity. We pray that you bless this time, that your word would go forth, that your spirit would move in hearts, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The most popular songs of all time are, unsurprisingly, love songs, right? Those are the most popular songs of all time. Throughout the years, we have Etta James singing her 1960 hit, at last, right? Uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough by a few different artists in the 60s and 70s. Numerous songs by Luther Vandross, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, and boy band songs in the 80s and 90s. Taylor Swift and the Jonas Brothers today, and a myriad of countless other songs through the years. They range from mere lust, to insane infatuation, to being in love, to bad breakups. But the real question is, do any of them give the biblical and therefore actual answer to the question, what is love? And for anyone who instantly had Hathaway's 1993 hit single pop into your head just now, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, okay, some of you are looking at me with completely blank stares, so that's okay. Like I mentioned last week, with Judas and Satan possessing him gone and out of the picture for now, Jesus delves into an open and personal discourse towards his remaining 11 disciples, revealing deep theological truths and revealing his great love for them. It's that great love that Jesus just scratches the surface of in verses 33 through 34 that we're picking up with this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 13. Uh, we're going to be in just two verses this morning, but there's some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, and I might add, some of the most widely cherry-picked and ripped out of context verses there are in the entire Bible as well. John chapter 13, it's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, that's okay. Look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. John chapter 13, verses 33 through 34, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, 34 through 35, we read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. Now, like I said, these are some of the most wildly ripped out of context verses uh, of the entire Bible. And so a lot of people will read the first few words of verse 34, rip it wildly out of context and shout it from the rooftops. See, all Jesus wants us to do now is to focus on love and loving one another and everything else in the Bible is no longer relevant to being a Christian. How many of you have heard that before from other people? It's quite a popular worldview now. In fact, I've had conversations with people or seen people post on social media opinions that mirror the exact same sentiment and message. Ripping these first few words out of these verses is the counterfeit gospel of the day today. A lot of people today will claim that Jesus negated all the standards of righteous living out of the Jewish law and out of the entire Old Testament, that he was establishing a new commandment that is only based on love and through a human understanding, manipulation and twisting of what love is, a new commandment of just not judging anyone about anything and showing them, just showing them, love. Some people today even toss everything the Apostle Paul wrote about godly living and what that is and what it is not out the window by claiming that Jesus's new commandment of just loving people trumps any of that. So now we have this false and extremely prevalent gospel of just accepting anyone's sinful lifestyle, sinful identity, sinful sexual relationship, or sinful gender identity, or lack thereof, as perfectly fine, and we're just supposed to love everyone without any calls to repentance of sin. Most everyone here watching online later has most likely heard or seen this from someone recently. Is that what Jesus is getting at here? Is Jesus tossing all the standards for godly living from the Old Testament or negating any other standards for godly living from the New Testament out the window by giving a new commandment to just love everyone? You've probably picked on already from what I've already said that absolutely not. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. So what is Jesus getting at by declaring to his disciples in verse 34 that he is giving them a new covenant, a new commandment rather? In the context in which Jesus is saying this, as one biblical scholar points out, this commandment to his disciples that Jesus gives here is only new because his death and resurrection bringing about salvation from sin and adoption into God's family and the creation of his church made up of both Jewish and Gentile disciples of Jesus will be new. In other words, Jesus is not negating or trumping any other commandments for what God's righteous st standards for living for the follower of Jesus are. He's adding to that a declaration for how he wants his new universal church to relate to one another. To an unbelieving, dark, sinful, fighting, warring world, Jesus' church of his followers, based on their repentance and salvation from sin, would and should 
look much different. What should and would mark and set Jesus' church apart from this selfish, proud, backbiting, self-promoting, and fighting world, as he says here, is their love for one another. But again, this isn't a human understanding or a human definition of what love is, of what love should look like. Jesus is very clear about that here as well. We have no right, believer or not, as humans, to come up with our own human definition of what Jesus meant when he said to love one another. So what is Jesus' definition of what that love for one another as his disciples should be and look like? Well, we have that definition in verse 34 as well. Love one another, what? As I have loved you. That's it right there. It's as simple as that. When one actually reads through what Jesus did and said throughout the four Gospels and doesn't lazily place hearsay or what they want it to be over what Jesus actually did and said throughout the four Gospels and not cherry-pick and rip wildly out of context specific verses, what do we see? Do we see Jesus just letting people's sinful lifestyles go, not calling them to repentance of their sin and just loving them for the sake of loving them? Do we see that? No, not at all. I hope you don't see that, or I have not been doing the job God has called me to do. All the time, especially as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we see Jesus calling the crowds, calling the Pharisees, and calling his own disciples to repent of their sin and put their faith in him as the Messiah, as the prophesied Son of Man and Son of God. What Jesus does is not legalistically bashed people over the head in self-promoting pride and to make himself feel better about his own self-righteousness like the Pharisees love to do. What Jesus does is have his love for his disciples and the world as the motivation to calling people to repentance and faith. What Jesus does is have his love for his disciples and the world as the motivation for calling people to repentance and faith. Jesus' love for his disciples is his motivation to call them to repent and follow him, to teach them about his kingdom and God's standards of living for them, to serve them and to ultimately die for them. That selfless love looked completely different from anything the sinful world had portrayed for thousands of years and that who is supposed to be the religious leaders of Israel had portrayed for hundreds of years. It's Jesus' definition of love. What is that? Selfless service to God and God's people, and love for God and his commands, and love to motivate each other to loving and living for and serving God, and serving one another. All of that 
is the radically different definition of love that had been existence in humanity for thousands of years. So again, because I want to be abundantly clear, this is not Jesus declaring a human definition of love and lack of accountability over everything that God had already declared. This is Jesus declaring that his new church should make how Jesus showed his love for God and for people their example for how they are now to relate to one another. Paul specifies what this love does not look like in one of his letters to the Corinthian church. He writes that love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. Does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Ironically, or not so ironically, doesn't what Paul write as what God's definition of love is not look exactly what the world preaches is what love looks like? We come back to our opening of different love songs throughout the decades, and more often than not, they promote a very selfish and self-emphasizing love. What can this person do for me? How can this person fulfill me? How can I use this person to accomplish what I want? We just read that love is not arrogant, nor does it seek its own benefit. And yet it's the unbiblical, worldly, and selfish view, understanding, and definition of love that causes so many marriages to implode. We just read that love does not either act disgracefully, nor does it rejoice in unrighteousness. We just read that as well. This should be pretty clear already, but so-called love that is only based on sexual relationships outside of a biblical marriage relationship, and therefore sinful, fits God's definition of what is disgraceful and does not fit his definition of love. And rejoicing in, and in other words, celebrating being proud or filled with pride about what God's word clearly defines as sinful sexual relationships or sinful gender identities or any other sin is not what God defines as love. This is all abundantly clear. Even if most people don't agree with or like it, that does not change what God's word says about love. And especially what God's word says love is not. Again, to anyone who believes that Jesus' love just covers over and negates all of this is horribly wrong. What else do we see love is not? When we read love is not jealous of what other people have or what other people have accomplished. Love does not allow anger and rage to be the knee-jerk reaction in relationships, whether it be in marriages or general relationships between believers in Christ's church. 
And love does not keep an account of wrongs. That's what we read here. Love does not keep an account of wrongs. Constantly bringing past wrongs up time and time again. Again, whether it be in marriages or general relationships between believers in Christ's church. Rather, what we read in God's word is that love forgives and moves on. Knowing we're all imperfect and we're all sinful. With one major difference, however, and I want to be clear about this too. Sexual unfaithfulness in a marriage is a whole other discussion from God's word. And that is the only biblical basis for divorce we see in God's word. Generally, Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 13 covers all of the wrong, unbiblical, and sinful views of what the world thinks is love. In other words, what God says love is not. And this is why Jesus' definition of love and the love he wants his disciples to have for one another is so radical and therefore new. We see this in the person of Jesus, and we see this in the ministry of Jesus. But how does the rest of God's word specify what this looks like? Well, let's start with the direct context of Jesus saying these words in verses 34 through 35 of our passage. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to his disciples, right? These 11 disciples... And other followers of him, indeed the 120 total of them, gathered together in the upper room on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago when the Holy Spirit was permanently poured out on them, were the first members of the first church. So what other instruction do we find about Jesus' love that is supposed to be lived out and seen in his church? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient. This goes hand in hand with what Paul writes to the Colossian church when he says, So all those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and there's that word again, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so must you do also. In addition to all these things, put on love. And this is God's definition of love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Such beautiful words, right? As Christ's body, we are to take off the old self of selfishness, pride, and self-promotion, throw that away, and put on the new self of Jesus' love. Paul says to the Colossian church that this means putting on the new heart of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of gentleness, and of patience. It's caring for one another going above and beyond to show kindness to one another, putting aside our own pride, putting aside being offended by something a brother or sister said, or being rubbed the wrong way by something a brother or sister did, and living and showing humility towards one another. 
It's responding to one another with gentleness, relating to one another the way Jesus deals with us and our shortcomings and our failures. And how Jesus leads, gently leads us to his truth and his way of living. It's being patient with one another, giving one another the benefit of the doubt, knowing we all have faults, we all have shortcomings, we all have imperfections, and bearing with one another in that patience, humility, and gentleness. Jesus also instructs in Matthew that if someone has sinned against us, we should go to him or her privately and combined with Paul's instruction with humility and gentleness. It should ultimately lead to forgiveness, as Paul writes in Colossians 3, knowing that Jesus has forgiven us for all of our faults, for all of our offenses, for all of our sins. More often than not, the offending person didn't even realize what they said or did, what the offense was of what they said or did. And once it's brought to them, if led by the Holy Spirit, is more than contrite about it, and both people can now move on. This patience, humility, gentleness, compassion, and treating each other as we would like to be treated in any given situation, Jesus' words again, as Jesus also commanded, all goes into God's definition of biblical love. In what we read in Colossians 3, this biblical love is the force of the bond of unity that keeps and holds us all together as the body of Christ. We all come from different backgrounds, pasts, past sins, ethnicities, different things that are about us, but Jesus' love and the love of the Holy Spirit is the power that binds us all together as one, as one body of Christ. It's what holds us all together no matter who we are, what our pasts are, where we came from. There are a couple of other aspects of this biblical love that holds us all together. Another aspect is to still hold to and instruct the truth of God's word, its instruction on who he is, how we are to relate to one another as his church, and how we are to live in obedience to his commands for righteous living in love. In fact, in the same chapter of Colossians 3, Paul includes, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 4, 14 through 15 tells us, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up, to mature in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. That's the whole church. All of us growing up. All of us maturing in our faith and walk with the Lord. All of this biblical instruction in love and the gentleness, humility, 
compassion towards each other leads to and goes hand in hand with this. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. Look for ways to go above and beyond to encourage a fellow church family member and build one another up as the body of Christ as a whole is built up. Lastly, this gentleness, humility, compassion, and patience is seen most often and best in serving one another as the body of Christ. According to God's word, a biblical definition and understanding of love is seen in real, tangible, and physical ways through us serving one another as fellow servants of Christ. I used this verse on Service Sunday a few weeks ago, and it's perfect for today as well. First, First Peter 4.10 As each one has received a special gift, employ it, use it in serving one another as good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. And just as crucial to our understanding of this in connection with love, for you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but do what with it? Serve one another through love. By God's leading, all of this is perfectly fitting for all of us on this membership Sunday and being reminded of what the body and church of Christ must look like within it with his definition of what love is to encourage one another to live the lives God has called us all to live for him, to build up the body of Christ and to be a radical example and portrayal of what Jesus' love actually is and looks like to this dark and evil world. By both extension and immediate connection, all of what we've been talking about, about God's definition of love according to his word, about Jesus' example and portrayal of it, and what God's word commands and its instruction in direct connection to it, it flows seamlessly into how God wants us to see marriage and how he commands and instructs us to live and act towards our spouses in these marriages. Firstly, we know that God's word teaches that he is the creator and founder of marriage. And therefore, he is the creator and founder of sex. He created the first man and first woman and performed the first marriage ceremony. As the creator and founder of marriage and of sex, he is the only one who gets to define what that includes, what that looks like and how spouses should treat each other in marriage. At the very foundation, to be abundantly clear, God's definition and blueprint for marriage is to only be between one man and one woman, and that sex must only occur in that biblical definition and blueprint of marriage. Anything outside of that, anything, outside of that, no matter how culturally accepted it is or not, is therefore sin according to God's word. 
whether it's just any sexual relationship with anyone you're not married to, or cohabitation, or looking at porn, or any homosexual, bisexual, or pansexual identity or relationship, sexual assault and rape, sexual abuse of any kind, identifying as any gender or lack thereof other than your biological sex, and inextricably connected gender and the roles God created for both of those, or, I can't believe I have to vocalize this, but this is the day in which we live, any kind of sexual attraction or relationship with a child. All of it is sin. Now that we've specified what God is not okay with and considers sin, no matter what form it takes, like we had to specify what love was not, according to God, let's move on to what God intends, biblical love in a marriage to look like. Like I said, it's all directly connected to everything we've already talked about, about love within the church. Why? Because God's word directly says so. Paul commands the married couples in the church of Ephesus, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, the word of God. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. First and foremost, husbands, you are called to, and therefore must, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. You must love your wives as Jesus loved the church. This is directly connected to what we read in this morning's passage. Love one another even, I, even as I have loved you. Husbands, are you displaying that? Jesus' humility gentleness, compassion, patience towards your wives. And ultimately, as Paul wrote here, Jesus gave himself up in perfectly selfless love for his church. Husbands, are you living out every day in selfless, sacrificial, serving love towards your wives? Are you, as we read in this passage, leading her and your family to be more sanctified by the washing of the word of God and helping her become closer to him? Like I've questioned before, you might be going through all these questions and say, yeah, check, 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 check. Would your wives answer the same way to all of these questions? Men, if we live this way and change what we need to change to live this way, not only does that solve most issues in rocky marriages, but it displays what God originally created marriage to be, an image of Jesus' relationship with the church and a real-life experience of his love. Do you want your, lo your wife to feel loved? by you 
show her the biblical love that Jesus exemplified. I've said this numerous times, but the reason why Paul had to command husbands to love their wives with Jesus' love, especially when you think she doesn't deserve it, is because it does not come naturally in our sinful humanity. That's why it needed to be a command, a biblical command. And the exact same thing could and will be said for Paul's command to wives. God commands husbands to love their wives with the same selfless and sacrificial love Jesus has for his church. And God commands wives to respect and submit to the spiritual authority of their husbands, especially when you think he doesn't deserve it. It's a command. It doesn't matter whether or not you think he deserves it. Same with husbands towards wives. Paul writes in the same exact chapter, Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Again, this is not condoning domestic abuse. I want to be very clear about that. It's talking about spiritual authority. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their husbands in everything. The wife must see to it, that she respects her husband. There's a biblical command to wives towards their husbands. Just as I elaborated on with the command to husbands, this in no way condones domestic abuse or husbands lording any kind of authority over their wives that they must simply blindly obey. That's not what this is talking about here. What these verses do say is only a continuation of what God established as gender roles when he created man and woman. He created both to be equal in worth. I want to be very clear about that. God created man and woman to be equal in value and worth. That's why he created Eve out of Adam's rib, to show that he created them both in his image and with equal value and worth. What God did do, however, is create man first to show that he had created him with the position and responsibility of being the spiritual authority over his family. This is not a position to be coveted since every husband and father will have to stand before Jesus himself and give an account for how he fulfilled or did not fulfill that position. That position of spiritual authority also includes the role of protector. Men, you are to protect your wives and protect your children. He is supposed to protect his wife, protect her soul, protect her body from spiritual and physical harm and lead her to spiritual and physical well-being. Because of this, the wife is freed from the burden and responsibility of being that spiritual authority to support and come alongside her husband and with respect and as God's word commands, help him be the, the best spiritual authority he can be both for her and their family. This is why God said to, to the woman when he cursed Adam and Eve and kicked them out of the garden, you're going to keep trying to usurp that authority for yourself. But that's not what I created for these gender roles. I created man to be your husband, to be your spiritual authority. Similar to what I asked the husbands, wives, 
Are you doing that? Are you respecting and submitting to his spiritual authority? Are you living that out? And would he say the same thing? See, what this is, is a mutual goal between husband and wife. And that goal requires the husband love his wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife respect her husband in the position God created him to have. And in direct connection with all that we've already covered, the husband must love his wife by selflessly serving her day in and day out, and the wife must respect her husband by serving him day in and day out, and neither living or acting towards each other out of selfishness or pride. A mutual serving of one another. The question is always raised, what if one of the spouses is an unbeliever? Does that change how the believing spouse is to act and live towards the unbelieving one? No. God's word gives instruction for that scenario as well. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? If you as a believer love your spouse the way God tells you to, that displayed biblical love could very well be the one thing that eventually leads them to also put their faith in Jesus. As Paul asks these rhetorical questions, you have no clue. You have no clue what God's plan involves. Biblical love in that marriage is just as important. Jesus told his disciples in our passage this morning to love one another even as he had and would go through to love them. And through that witness, show this dark and evil world what true love really is. It's not what they think it is, and most often not what they sing about or promote. We've delved into what God's definition of and Jesus' portrayal of love really is. And the shortest definition and understanding is this. True love, according to God's word, is selfless and humble service. That's what true love, according to God's word, is. Selfless and humble service. I know we covered a lot today, and you could hear a pin drop in here today. Maybe not because it's carpeted, but you know what I'm talking about. I think we all have a lot to think about, right? I think we all have a lot to think about according to God's word. I think we all have a lot to change in our lives according to God's word. And I think we all have a lot to work on through the Holy Spirit's power and transformation as fellow members of the body of Christ and in our marriages. And that is to show this dark and evil world what love really is and what it really looks like. It all rests, it's all founded upon, the foundation is this, Jesus. His commands and his perfect example of selfless and humble 
service, and sacrifice. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even I, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this difficult but necessary and required message from your word about what love is not, especially in connection with this world and our own selfishness and pride, and what true biblical love really is. Gentleness, humility, compassion, patience. Loving as Christ loved the church and respecting Lord God, I pray that you would give us all the power and strength to do what we need to do, to clean up what needs to be cleaned up, to change what needs to be changed, to get things right, whether it's between one another and before you, that we may all, as, you, as your word says, grow up, continue to grow up, and continue to mature in the faith that you have given to us and the walk that you are leading us on with you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.